At the end our tale's begun. The curtain's down, the bows are done. Work is finished, scripts are writ. In centre stage, a light is lit. That's the ghost light, on its own. Shining bright, but all alone, except for those who hear its calls, and come to revel in its halls. For though the theatre's doors are closed, its power cannot be deposed, and so we ask that you all might come join us. Revel by Ghost Light. Hello everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Ghostlight Revels. I am, as ever, your host, Michael Cartledge, and today we've got a very special guest, someone who I've had the pleasure of working with many times, and who most recently, and most relevantly for this, is now my chief financial officer for our company, Gaslamp Theatre. Please give a very warm welcome to James Warburton. Hello, James. Hello, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And as ever, and I remind us all that we are using here in a solely metaphysical sense, as we are all still social distancing, because we are all still under imminent threat of death. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, James. Now, uh, you have definitely a very interesting history within the creative sector. Yeah. You and I have, thinking on it, I do generally think you and I have worked together more than anyone else I know. Quite possibly. I'm trying to think now. It's, uh, it's about what, five, six plays? Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah. 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 You know, quite. Quite. Yeah. Quite. <laughs> quite. Storied uh, joint career. Indeed. Indeed. And there will be plenty of time to unpack all that later. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, but let us start, as we always do, with uh, a bit about how you first got involved in the creative sector. So, whenever you're ready. It's, it's not one because it depends on how you like what you define really as starting. Um, it's either like two decades ago or five years, depending on, because um, I think my first sort of taste of acting was the same as a lot of people, I imagine, when I played a shepherd in my primary school's nativity play. Um, but obviously that was more of a narration role than, a, than an acting one. Um, probably my first taste of public speaking, I guess. Um, Classic. But then, obviously, did a couple of things in, in primary school, uh, to be fair, like the standard primary productions. I played uh, one of the Merry Men in a production of Robin Hood. That was uh, that was fun. And in a very odd, like, turn, I think in year six, it was, um, I played, it was, it was, I played Sherlock Holmes, but not in, like, a Sherlock Holmes-based play. It was, like, a weird combination of, like, lots of different Victorian literary figures Badged up as a production of, well, I guess it would be Pygmalion, but it was, uh, it was branded as My Fair Lady. So, yeah, it was very odd. Very odd. Um, that sounds uh, simultaneously. The pitch sounds fascinating, but now remembering that it would have been done by a load of school children, it sounds. Yeah, like a bunch of 10 or 11 year olds, yeah. It wasn't yep. great. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Like, that, I think that was the first time I was like, actually, I quite enjoy acting. Um, and then I, I did. Uh, GCSE drama in uh, secondary school did quite a few productions with that I remember 
was ramping up to do a production, I spoke to you about this previously, of The, of the Crucible, mm. where I played, uh, I, I, I was cast as um, Samuel Paris, the, um, the actual, like the initial minister of the, of the town, uh, which I enjoyed a lot, but a lot of the rest of the cast didn't really enjoy the play, and so we ended up kind of canning it um, for a lot of different reasons, a lot of logistical reasons, but also... Uh, because I was the only member of the cast that seemed to be enjoying themselves, mm. which was uh, a shame. Uh, but then we, yeah, we did a bunch of other stuff. Um, two things that very much stuck out for me in that was my first sort of foray into writing as well. Uh, when I adapted with my grandfather, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, the, the Pendulum mm. for uh, stage, which I then uh, performed in. And... Um, we also do this every year. I don't know if they still do it, but back back then, every year the um, Lancashire County Constabulary ran like a, which is an odd sort of <laughs> uh, patron to have, I guess. Um, they they ran a sort of theatre kind of festival kind of thing throughout Lancashire called Northern Beat, and uh, every year the like drama students from schools and colleges around them around the county were given sort of a, a topic of importance in their region. So for, I don't know if it was true across the county, but for the Fylde region where, where I'm from, um, we got teen pregnancy in 2010. So that was our big thing. So we did a, a, a production about about that. Um, I played uh, the one of the friends of the male lead, um, was considered the voice of reason. So there began my uh, my my long um, typecasting. Long, long typecasting of being the reasonable one in a cast full of uh, slightly less uh, grounded individuals. I want to argue, but in the half a dozen productions we've done together, that entirely stands up to scrutiny. And it does mostly, yes. Um, until, until we get to the most recent one. <laughs> mm. But, um, oh yes, yeah. Um, I've forgotten but, about that. Yeah, so that that was it. And then didn't do a lot. I didn't do didn't do theatre at A level, which uh, I do regret because um, I enjoyed it a lot at GCSE. Um, but I did a couple of stuff like on film, uh, but things on film for my friends uh, who ran. They still do run a, a sort of media company. Um, it's called I think it's called Upload Pen- Upload Pending now, but at the time it was Big Sync Productions. And did a couple of things with them. Mostly it was like background stuff. But um, there was one thing. They when I was, it was in first year of university, actually. And I was back home. And it was back when I had particularly short hair. And um, not as short as you've seen it. You've obviously seen it. You've seen me with no hair. But, I have. Um, it was, uh, I still have nightmares. <laughs> yes, it, it, was very, it was very short. And they were saying, oh, we're going to film what well, they'd hoped to be like, the pilot of a series. Uh, and they'd like me to be, sort of see if I would be all right for the, the lead. And uh, it was about a sort of corrupt police officer uh, within CID, using his position to sort of line his own pockets and sort of build this underworld empire, which is something which you see a lot of. But it, you don't really see them as the lead, like as the, the, as the protagonist. They're often a, like a secondary villain but yeah so I was like yeah that's fine unfortunately so the, filming, the first day of filming went really well and I'm like yeah it was great 
and then a couple of weeks later, the hard drive it was on was became corrupted, so most of the files were lost. But you can still see a couple of clips from it in um, Cameron Ward, who was the uh, the director, in his sort of showreel from 2014. But you still see, and you'll be able to pinpoint it because it's me with incredibly short hair in a suit, uh, looking a bit dishevelled. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. So that was that was that, and then. Okay, and then, um, so yeah, not much after after that, um, really, uh, ever on um, film, but nothing particularly big on stage between sort of 2011 and 2006, yeah, 16, it'd be. Um, so, uh, and it was then that the Alexandrian Society started doing plays again, uh, because had done them in the past, but for quite a few years have been trying to put on a Greek tragedy, and it just not, <laughs> and it not working. Uh, so uh, as as you well know, um, comedy is it's most difficult in its own way is a lot easier uh, to do on stage than tragedies, especially if it's slightly more obscure comedies or like original comedies mm. because. You can make mistakes part of the the plan. You can, and indeed we have. Oh, that's a lot. Definitely have. A lot. Um, but yeah, we um, we uh, yeah. So at that time, I'd been elected to the as the treasurer of the uh, the Arsene Society, beginning a long career on society boards. Oh yes, oh yes. Yes. Um, I think I, I think combined more years I've, I've spent more years on society boards than I have at university. <laughs> so, which is, uh, counting years when you have been on multiple boards as separate years, yes, probably the yes, case. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, but yeah, so uh, myself and uh, Pauline, the president at the time, uh, we were aware um, of the quite dire straits financially that the society were in. So we decided to um, various ways of making more money, and one of them was putting on uh, productions of classically inspired or classical uh, works. And so we bought the rights, which we still have. The society still have the rights to five plays, uh, five very short like plays. Um, we have used one of them um, in in the in the past, you know, four or five years. Uh, that was Theseus and the Minotaur, um, where I ended up playing Theseus. Um, so my first so foray into a lead on the stage for a part I hadn't written myself, <laughs> which was nice. Um, so that was good. And it was then really that I remembered my my love of acting in particular, uh, because I'd, I'd always enjoyed it, but I'd never really done anything with it. And I thought, well, this is fairly low stakes, like it's nobody's expecting much from uh, the Arizona side because whilst performing arts is an aspect of who they, uh, the Arizona society are, they're not a performing arts society in the same way as Stag or, or, or Shakespeare's or um, other Sicilians. So it's, um, yeah, it allowed me to sort of have a lot of fun doing that. Um, and then the, we did two plays that year. The, the second one was sort of a medley of Aristophanes, 
where I played a number of roles, including one that you're quite familiar with, Michael. I played uh, Cleisthenes in the scene from uh, Women at Thesmophoria, which um, <laughs> which was the first big production. The first time we'd, I'd done a, pro a production of like an actual historical play mm. uh, that had been written not in the 20th or 21st century. Um, and it was... Yeah, it was great fun. Played the played the lead, and you played a number of roles in that, including um, including Kleisnitz. Yes. Which I remember you came out dressed like Ziggy Stardust, if I remember correctly. I still have that suit. Yes. Yes. Which was a lot of fun. That was that, that was that was a lot of fun. That was my sort of mm. and and through the uh, Alexandrians, I'd done quite a, I've done some stuff on the production side as well. So the year before that. Uh, we did an episodic play about, as you remember, about the um, about an ancient and mythological couple seeking couples counselling. Yeah, I, I do <laughs> recall. Which had been an idea, like, sort of a vague idea in the back of my head for a couple of years at that point. And then um, well, I technically did write for that, but my scene was not included for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but was adapted um, slightly in the sort of spiritual sequel we did a couple of years later, Doctor uh, Sisyphus. Yes. So I, I wrote uh, an Oedipus and Jocasta scene, which... Ah, um, uh, yes. Incredibly dark. Like the original, the, the, the adapted one that Con uh, Konstantinos did was um, was much more lighthearted than the original, but it still kept like a lot of the darkness within it. Whereas the original, uh, the original scene that I wrote was incredibly dark. Like the... The humour in it was quite, yeah, it was... Graveyard humour. Uh, which, anyone who knows me, is very much my, my sense of humour. One could argue that it is difficult to find a light-hearted and humorous slant on the story of Oedipus, given that it's entirely based around murder, incest... And suicide. Suicide, yeah. ritual blinding, and then yeah. more exactly. murder. It's, it's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty brutal one. Um... To be sure. So you need a dark sense of humour to try and make that funny. Um, mm. I think I did. It was just the rest of it. Whilst obviously there were dark edges to it, because it's like you got Zeus and Hera and you know, um, Jason and Medea, which obviously have particularly dark slants to them. And Nero and oh, Caligula and his sisters, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sisters. Um, I think Caligula, that was like genuinely lighthearted. Like the story, even though it has particularly dark points in it, is. Um, is Orpheus and Eurydice because like, obviously she dies, which is a and then is lost to Hades. Yes. Compared to the others, is particularly lighthearted. I do but think the actor playing Orpheus did a very good job he making did. it. He was very good. I, because I, 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 um, I, I directed that piece as well. Um, I know. Um, I was there. I, remember. I, I very hands-off directorial style. Um, I, I take my I took my cues from. Um, reading stuff about how Clint Eastwood directs actors. Uh, and I think it worked, to be fair. I think I think everyone did particularly well, like uh, just stepping in when I think something's not quite right and then sort of letting the actors do what they wanted. Um, so, yeah, that I, I particularly enjoyed, actually genuinely particularly enjoyed um, Orpheus and Eurydice, but it was one of the scenes I saw the least because, um, unfortunately, I had to go and get changed for my... But the part I'd sort of inserted for myself, which was the Praetorian Guardsman to Caligula, I was like, that was my directorial insert. 
And then I but I ended up having to play Jason as well because no one wanted to play Jason. Funny uh, that. Understandable. He's not a pleasant person. He's um, not. But I, I I enjoyed that. That was good fun. Mm. Um. But yeah, the, my, ins, my 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 directorial insert was uh, was the Victorian Garden, yes. which was a lot of fun. Which means I didn't get to see uh, your scene as 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 much as I wanted to. Yes. For those listeners who are confused about our in-joke regarding the character of Orpheus, I played said character yeah, yeah, many yeah, years I ago. Indeed. And then the following year, that um, production of the Women's Thesmophoria, I was the producer, which... Um, I think you'll agree with me in saying, uh, having produced things yourself, yes, uh, directed things. From an acting point of view, uh, Women's House Before It was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but as a producer, it was a nightmare. I mean, there were so many issues with production. There were um, the worst one was I think two, three weeks before the initial performance date. Two members of the cast dropped out of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were important parts of the cast. They, they, they were two of the, like, the, the big female parts. And so we struggled to recast them um, because we're like, we can't do this. We can't get... Because it's quite a long play as well. Yeah. And these, these were not inconsiderable parts. Um, like, it's not fair to everyone else who's putting work, um, to yourself who had to learn parts for, the lines for three different characters... Um, Davida, who'd done a wonderful job as as Euripides, mm. um, to and obviously uh, Duncan, the director, who, who'd done a pretty good job of get, actually creating this, yeah, um, and, and somehow making the madness work. Um, we um, so we recast and we had to push back the performance by two months. So it was because it was yes. like the end of March, end of being in the middle of May, but. It worked out brilliantly in the end, but it was. I put my foot down because I, w- I was staying on as president and producer of the Alexander Society plays. I put my foot down. I was like, "We're not doing that again. We're not doing an ancient play <laughs> again." Certainly, uh, it was for a while because it was. Yeah, that was that. That was an absolute nightmare. So, uh, yeah. Yes, then, it was. So a... After we did a couple of things, uh, including the Doctor Sisyphus, the spiritual sequel to OK Cupid. Yes. And which you played Lucian very well. That, that was a lot of fun to produce. Uh, worked very well with Constantinos. It was great fun to do. I was given more creative con- input on that character than I felt I should arguably get. Especially <laughs> yes, compared yeah, to you, other characters, because I was basically allowed to go on stage and do whatever I wanted, provided the director found it funny. Yeah. Yes, that, that, that was that was essentially cons, uh, which was essentially my like my direction for you as Orpheus, but with but you had a script. Yes. Whereas uh, you essentially wrote your script for. Uh, well, I mean, I had sort of a script. You had prompts. You had. You had, you had I had bits I had to say, which were direct quotations from. Um, this is going to take a bit of an explanation, which was kind of the point of the character within Doctor yeah. Sisyphus and his ancient patients, which was like OK Cupid. It was a load of ancient characters, both mythological and real, getting counselling. I played a character called Lucian of Samosata, who is a writer from the ancient world, who is 
arguably the first to write science fiction, but almost no one knows that, which was the yeah. entire joke, is that this character comes on and he's very big and self-important and so on, and was like, sorry, who are you again? Yeah, so it's like, um, like I think one of the things is like, he has like delusions of grandeur, but also like issues dealing with the fact that he should be famous and isn't, so it's like, it's all yes. Uh, probably one of the more light-hearted uh, characters in the, in the two plays. Um, I, I again play a Praetorian Guardsman in that, but a very different Praetorian Guardsman. Yes, from a very different Emperor. The Sardonic one of Caligula, I am the slightly uh, inept um, guard of Elagabalus instead. Yes. Who, um, my guard in, the guard of Elagabalus enjoys his job, whereas the guard of Caligula has come to hate it. Um, and ends up stabbing Caligula at the end. Yes. But, um, whereas your character just lets him get killed. Yeah, I let him get killed. Yes. You also, in that I play, play yes, played yourself, which was uh, largely my idea. Yeah, in your scene, because you start to take pot shots at the writing, directing, and production crew. So, yeah, I come in on the, on the edge in my, in my suit that I've been, uh, been wearing, and um, just as myself, <laughs> trying to defend myself against the roast. It, well, it all came from an idea that me, Constantinos the director, and the chap playing Dr. Sisyphus came oh, up with um, in rehearsals. Oh, yes, it, we were in rehearsals and we were doing a bit where my character is self-aggrandizing and I thought I should have business cards. And then yeah, someone uh, I, suggested... I business yes, as a, as a you had gotten business cards as a researcher for the university. So we thought, oh, we can use them as well. And then I thought... Why don't we actually make a joke of this? And so the whole joke was that I hand Dr. Sisyphus the business card. He looks at says, Dr. James Warburton. He then makes a bread joke because yeah. it's an easy joke. And, and, I'm, and my whole thing was like, I said, get me a card that says boring and full of information no one cares about. Yeah. 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 Which... Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yes. Um, I also occasionally during rehearsals may have slightly thrown a script at you a bit. Yeah, which we decided, I think, against in the second production because of the way the audience yes. was set up. But before... I think we did it in the first one. Um, but I had to give a warning to the people sat behind me. It was like, you might get hit in the face with a script if Michael misses me. <laughs> before any audience members write in and complain about abuse on set, I would like to say that me beating James up became a long-standing and proud tradition within Alexandrian yeah. society plays. They did, starting with... Women of the Thesmophoria. Women of the Thesmophoria, because um, all three of your characters, to a lesser, lesser extent, do, um, do attack. Um, On one of them, you attacked me first. Yes, that is true, yes. That is true, it um, was... Um... And then you and then you get, we get some uh, rather, now, what would rather be um, rather appropriate uh, brutality from a um, defender of the peace. Indeed. Um, it, was, uh, it was um, Women of the Thesmophoria was an interesting one because, as James has stated, I played three different characters, which was not the original plan. It just sort of happened. Uh, I I played. What was the name of the first character I played? I always forget. Agathon. Agathon. The tragic poet. Agathon, the tragic poet, whom the director Duncan decided that I, a six foot tall bearded guy, should be in quite a revealing dress. Don't get me wrong, it was a lovely dress that I nearly bought after the show, but uh, the maker of it was unwilling to part with it. Um, yeah, Joe jo did a wonderful job. 
she did a fantastic job. Um, uh, Joe was one was our head of costume for that. She also ended up acting in the show as one of the women in the Phasmophoria. Yeah, we we the Alexandrians have some very small pool of actors to draw from. Yes, um, but um, but uh, as as Agathon, I do slap James on occasion, but in a very comic manner. Yeah, um, I seem to remember I slapped you and you just went actors. No, no, it wasn't actors. The word I said was thespians. Yes. Because it works on two levels. Because obviously Thespis was a, an ancient Greek city-state, but also thespian comes to mean actor. actor. Yes. So yeah, it was a... Which I, mm. I'm very proud of. Then I played Cleisthenes, a role formerly played by James in a completely different show. Yes. In which, which the I director decided... Yes. In which... And with the director decided I should be dressed as Ziggy Stardust yeah, for reasons known but... I think it was partly because the director, Duncan, had been on a stag do some years previously and had a Ziggy Stardust suit left over that he decided I can do something fun with this. Uh, so I ended, I got to keep the suit afterwards, but he didn't let me keep the red wig. So, unfortunate on that. Uh, and then finally I played I played a a centurion, a guardsman. Yes, a guardsman in the city of Athens who guarded the prefect, played by the director Duncan in the classical directorial self-insert. Um, yes. Here's the funny one. This is the funny one. This is where I got the reputation for being the one who beats up James because in the in the show, don't start on in the show. The role was simply right. You stand by the prefect. You say one line in a very bad Scottish accent, and then you tie James up and leave the stage. What happened on the night of the show was, I what had happened actually was that right before I came on stage, I was in the back on my laptop trying to get tickets to see my favourite band, who only do. They they don't play outside of America except one festival, uh, and I was desperately trying to get tickets. I do remember this. Yeah. And I got the tickets. I pressed the button, and it read on the screen, "Congrats, you are going to see Steam Power Giraffe," which was the band. All the while, Duncan is saying to me, "Michael, we're on in a minute. Hurry up!" Instead of that, I immediately I click it, buy, go on stage. I'm in a very good mood, so I'm perhaps overly exuberant in my beat. Long and the short of it is, the Centurion helmet I was wearing may have broken because I was battering him over the head with it. Yes. Um, in, in Michael's defence, um, the the initial character like description went out the window very quickly in rehearsals. We decided that that the, that I would get roughed up. Uh, so it wasn't like he just beat me up on the night and I didn't no, any warning. No, I I, um, I I have never beaten James up without warning him beforehand. It's been, it's, been, it's been something we've agreed upon uh, beforehand. It was, and we did it in rehearsals. It was just that night. It was a bit overzealous, perhaps, compared to uh, yeah rehearsals. But everyone breaks a prop occasionally. The, uh, so yeah, um, but that was a lot of fun. And then it was yeah the year following that when we did uh, Sisyphus was my first sort of foray into uh, Shakespeare properly because um, I'd. Um, I had meant to audition, I think I told you this at the time, I had meant to audition for um, Twelfth Night, mm. which was the performance being done in the first semester. 
I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd actually planned to audition for uh, Junko Senior, although I'm glad I didn't because Will did a, a fantastic job. He uh, did. As, as the Duke. But I, I, I'd also recently started working in, uni- well, it was my second year, I think, working in university administration. Um, so I'm work, working for student services and um, also as president of the Alzheimer's Society, I spent both days of the Freshers' Fair stalls so I spent the entirety of Freshers week around Freshers and got Freshers flu um, ah. yeah, I got it quite badly and I lost my voice which was not ideal for a number of reasons one I recently started taking Latin and in, in Latin seminars there is uh, an interactive portion where you have to speak mm. and I could barely make a sound and then my voice started to come back when the auditions came but I didn't have my full register so my voice was quite low but it also meant I couldn't project fully so I was like, there's no fucking going. I'm not going to do particularly well. Um, but to be fair, I'm quite glad because I probably, based on the cast that, would, that the show had, wouldn't have been cast. And even if I had been, I don't think it would have been as good uh, regardless. So uh, it was a very good, very good production. I, it was the f- I went to watch it. Also, I'm not entirely sure which one of the nights fell on my graduation day, but one of them did, and that would have not been ideal. Um, but I, I went to I went to watch it uh, the night before my graduation with my my mum and, and my elder sister. And my elder sister is not exactly one for Shakespeare, and probably Twelfth Night was not the best way to uh, introduce her to it. It has quite a convoluted plot. It's a well-known one, but it is a tad complicated. But my, my mother, who is a big Shakespeare fan, very much enjoyed it. So mm. that was the main thing. Yes. And then, um, Wasn't the chap who played Malvolio wonderful? Yes, again, yes, Malvolio was very good as well. Michael played Malvolio. Yeah. I think uh, they can so guess I, that I, from I, the context. I auditioned for whatever the, whatever the um, but I really want to do Shakespeare. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, like, as I say, my, um, for the past couple of years, my love of acting has sort of resurfaced. And um, so I, I auditioned for whatever, whatever production. Um, it's been put on in second semester, and it was a play I obviously knew about, but hadn't really didn't really know the plot of, uh, which was uh, Measure for Measure. Mm-hmm. And so I went away and read it, and I well, didn't read, but I read like the synopsis of the plot and the characters, and obviously, and I was like, okay, so most of these characters are terrible people. And I went, I heard most, um, and um, so I went, I went, I went to the audition, and I initially auditioned. For, well, audition for, the audition pieces I read were for Angelo and Claudio, initially, uh, which are interesting when, you, when you, you'll, you'll learn about the character I was cast as. Um, and then I, I got a callback, which I was amazed by, because I was like, I just went along because I thought, well, this will be fun, I've always wanted to do it. So I got a callback from uh, Lucy, the director, and I was like, yeah, of course I'll come on. Uh, so my callback piece I read for Angelo. So I, I read that, and I remember after the read-through, uh, I don't know if this was the same, was the same for you, Michael, uh, they asked you who your favourite character was? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I was like, well, I'd gone sort of read through the um, the character synopsis. I was like, well, and I, I said Aeschylus, because, uh, which, who hadn't been one of the audition pieces, because he's one of the few characters that's not, who's down, he's relatively down-to-earth, he's, he's kind, he's calm he's a, he's a nice sort of grounded presence in what is a pretty 
ridiculous at play at times. He's not a megalomaniac, you mean? Well, yeah, surrounded by, well, surrounded by uh, megalomania. I know, I was one of them. Yes. Um, and then he, uh, so I got, I got the call a couple of days later from Lucy. I was like, well, they were going to get in contact with everyone. So it was like, yeah, so, and apparently I was the only person who'd mentioned Eskless at all in the entire audition process. And um, that was how I got that role, because they felt that I wasn't quite right. I hadn't got quite the, um, the monomaniacal aspects of um, Angelo right. Um, but they thought that I could perhaps play this slightly more reserved <laughs> Aeschylus, um, which combined with playing with Aeschylus started a trend of me playing old men. Um, often because I am one of the, if not the oldest uh, cast member in, in productions, given the fact that the vast majority of student productions are done by undergrads, and I am a, I'm a PhD student, so... True. Yeah. Um, that, that, that was amazing. I really enjoyed Nightmare Probably one of my um, favourite productions I, I have done. Um, but not my last one. With, uh, I was the final one I did, the fi final one to date, uh, so I've only done two so far, but it's still early days. It is. was Macbeth. Um, and Macbeth was an interesting one, because um, I had elected not to audition for anything um, in first semester of the second year of my PhD, because I spent a lot of time doing things that weren't my PhD in first year, <laughs> and I'd um, somewhat paid the price. So I... Um, I thought, I won't audition for anything. It'll be fine. But obviously, as treasurer of the Shakespeare Society, I, I'll be involved in the production. I, I'll make sure to drop in on rehearsals every so often so people know who I am. So we didn't have the experience we had in Measure for Measure, where we knew Michael was the president at the time, but we didn't know anyone else on the board. And then this guy walked in, like, randomly halfway, halfway through one of the productions to chat to us. I was like, who the hell are you? And it turned out he was the secretary of the society, which is never yes. there so, so making sure everyone knew who, who had been doing them. his uh, dissertation throughout the rehearsal process. So, well, I yeah, no, forgivable. It wasn't like he was, he was as involved as he could be. I obviously have not suggested, but it was just it was very odd because we're like, and, and who are you? Yes. <laughs> I remember um, being there and thinking, oh, like, hang on, they don't know him, and like everyone, this is Jamie. He's the secretary yeah. of the society. Yeah, and it, well, yeah, and obviously everything he had to say was very relevant. Yes. Saying that it was like a, an unwelcome intrusion, it was just a confusing one. Yes. Um, so trying to prevent that for the, um, the cast this year, because I, I knew that, well, Anna had been, had been cast, the secretary, that, mm. uh, last year, um, had been cast, so obviously they'd meet her. Um, but I wanted to make sure they knew at least one other board member as well, so we had points of contact. And I wanted them to know me not just as the guy that came around and asked for them money every so often. Mm. Uh, um, in fairness, the but, show was also uh, directed by a board member, so... Yeah, that's true, yes. It was also directed by a board member, yes. And there were... In fact, there were a couple... There were quite a few board members in the play. Um, yes. By the end of it, um, costumed by a board member, um, directed by a board member, Duff was played by a board member, so... Uh, but, but, fine, the executive, I should say, the executive. Yes. Um, and I... Uh, so I... But then a couple of weeks later, uh, Sarah came to me 
I said, we made a mistake, James. And I was like, okay, uh, what is it? It's like, so Catherine, who's playing the doctor, is also playing Seward. I was like, okay, well, what's the issue? It's like, well, there's a couple of scenes where Seward is the first character on after the doctor is the last character to leave, and the costume change is quite significant. I was like, okay, right. Because <laughs> I was like, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> like, you're the director. And then uh, she's like, well, we were Thomas and I were wondering if you'd want to play Seward. And I thought, okay, yeah, fine. Like, it's an incredibly short part. It's not going to take up too much of my time, which was the big danger of, uh, of, uh, of Macbeth in particular. It's a very long play. So um, mm-hmm. it is. It's like Seward's in four scenes. So I was like, yeah, no, of course I'll, I'll do that. No problem. And that was how I got cast in Macbeth, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, it was an interesting experience because I got. It, it's a wonderful thing being only in the, like the last five percent of a play, because you get to watch pretty much the entire play <laughs> um, before before you're on. Uh, it's also interesting, is like because um, I lost the Doctor and Seward only appear in uh, Act Five. Uh, Catherine had also played one of Duncan's guards, uh, so she was in Act One. So I was the only actor who was who wasn't in both. <laughs> Both halves of the play, <laughs> because I, I, I was the only I was the only member of the cast who wasn't involved in the dance scene, and I was the only one like the, the party scene, and I was the only one who wasn't. Um, yeah, so it's like well, introducing a, a new character that you've not seen for ninety five percent of the play, and a new actor. <laughs> so, yep, which is uh, it was not something that's often done in theatre, but uh, I, I am grateful for the. Uh, for the opportunity. Uh, again, uh, a lot of fun playing Seward. Um, not a lot of acting, I'll be honest, playing Seward. Um, <laughs> what, playing an itinerant northerner? Yeah, pl- playing uh, playing a, a northerner with a military background and, um, you know, with a slightly, with, with a softer side, yeah. Um, yeah, it was me. <laughs> so, yes. Um yeah, and the only, like, even the Scots who were playing Scots were from different parts of Scotland to their character, whereas I am from the north of England. So exactly. It's, um, I would like to say something before we continue that made the whole, during Macbeth, one thing that I felt the entire cast came to know about James was that James is a big fan of the TV series Sharp, based on oh, the Sharp books, in which Sharp is, of course, played by Sean Bean whom James is also a huge fan of. Yes, and James at one point campaigns to be allowed to talk like Sharp doing the vault, right. which would basically mean he'd said all he would say all the lines as written, but he would end them all with the line, You bastard. Bastard. Yes. It would have been immediately shut down. But the reason that that came about was obviously a combination of my, my love of Sharp, but also if you you, you remember in Act Five well, Act 5, scene 1, but Act 5 of Measure Measure. Um, the Duke, for some reason, feels the need to pardon Aeschylus, <laughs> even though Aeschylus hasn't done anything wrong. I do recall this we, moment, we yes. I was very much getting into it, and I was like, I'll get into it, I'll, I'll, I'll be on right. And in the initial, like, the, the first, because it was a two-night run, the first night, um, I said, um, so, oh yeah, it was, uh, fucking God, I said to myself. But I said it, Quietly enough. So, yeah, a couple of people in the front row heard it, but really it was just Michael and myself. Yes. 
The second night, however, Lucy was like, just go for it. Just like to all of us, like just give it everything. And I I was fine, like everything else was fine, performance was great. And then comes to that scene, it's like, Eskos, for those words you spoke against us, I pardon you. And I went, Oh thank fuck I went, Oh thank fuck the top of my essentially the top of my voice. Got the biggest laugh of the night, to be fair. You did. I I nearly I could feel Olivia, the the the, the assistant director Olivia, I could feel her eyes boring into the back of my skull. She does that. You can feel that. I will say that you ought to actually be commended for this because I like to think of myself by and large as a, as, as, as a good actor and experienced actor. That is the closest I have ever come to corpsing on stage. The closest. Yeah, no, I, I think a couple of people in the back were like, oh, no. Yes. To, uh, but, but from this That's moment... In the, dressing, in the dressing room, Lucy came in and was like, I take the view that if you ad lib slightly in a play and the audience likes it, you can get away with it, even in a Shakespeare play. Yes, I, I, but I got away with that. There, there was, of course. There were a number of cast members who wanted you to be like, what fucking, what is this, you bastard? Yes, yeah, just. Yes. So, just all in all. <laughs> Considering the amount of time we've been speaking on it, you have had a rather long and varied career so far in the theatre. Yeah. 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 From, from, from yeah so, um, sort of in the interests of both time and my phone's battery life, um, we will we will move on from your past, uh, and we'll go forward to uh the present. Are you? What are you up to these days within the theatre? But um, obviously, uh, you and I are both technically still in a production um, for the Alexander Society, the, the Origins of Theatre, which has been put um, and they were just found because we were getting ready to perform it. Um, but just, but I think the the lockdown happened like a week before the performance date, so yes. that has been um, temporarily postponed. Mm. Um, hopefully, we'll get it done in the next few months, but who knows? Mm. Um, that was an interesting one, though, because it very much flipped the established formula, didn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, you play... Well, you very much still play a character like Orpheus or Lucian, but... Um, yes, I'm not saying I'm typecast, but I'm definitely... I was playing... Well, no, well, no, but it's a comedic take on those, so, so it's not like the comedy doesn't come from, like, who they are as people and what they, what they did. It, it's more like a satirical pastiche. Yes. Form. I the, the, the yes. Give us a brief rundown of the origins of theatre. The oh, play, yeah, so not uh, a lecture the on it. Theatre is uh, an original comedy uh, written and directed by Ewan Grey, mm. who uh, has quite a few um, writing credits to his name. Mm. He's quite a lot of stuff in the, the fringe. Um, and he, yeah, so he, he decides to come up with this idea of because um, obviously we, we have this historical idea and, and this knowledge that. The oldest extant surviving plays are belong to Eastcliff, so Eastcliff is considered the father of 
tragedy in the father of theatre. Mm. But the, the the comedy comes from the fact that it wasn't some like high society Athenian that comes up with this. It's a couple of slaves trying to trip their master into throwing a party kind of thing. And this this the slave who has delusions of grandeur who can see who sees himself as a great actor. Um, and that slave is called Homer in um, in, in honour of, of the uh, the poet um, and composer of the uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad, um, of who is played by myself. And there is a rhapsode um, who and the raps rhapsodes were sort of these people that sang lyric poetry, uh, lyric po and epic poetry in particular, uh, which Homer hates. Homer hates the rhapsode. Um, for no other reason than he finds epic uh, poetry boring. Guess who was playing so, the rhapsode, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, Michael is playing the rhapsode, and in what is a twist of fate, um, and rather, as you say, a turning on the head of the, the, uh, the formula, I knock the rhapsode, uh, Homer knocks the rhapsode out and drags him off. So, very much in the reversal, I beat Michael up on stage yes. for the first time in, in, in three years. Yes. Um, do you know? Do you know what happened? I at one point. And then, yeah, and then, and then Homer takes the Rhapsod's place. Yes. And it's a big success. And, and so no now, one notices. No one notices that I'm not the Rhapsod. Um, In fairness, so you and I have made a lot of jokes about the idea of. Yeah, it's like uh, the best one was in Measure for Measure, where the fact that three of us, like uh, you, Alistair, played um, Angelo, you, you played the Duke, and myself with Aeschylus. Not only were we the three statesmen of Vienna, we all looked very similar. As yes. Well. Um, with glasses. Well, now that you have glasses as well. Yes. Glasses. There were many jokes about James and I are both approximately the same height and build. We both have very dark hair and beards. And the only difference formally was that I didn't wear glasses until the beginning of this year. Yeah. And so now, now we actually uh, wear practically the same kind of glasses as well. Yes. So yes. I suppose it works that the casting works there for Home and the Rhapsode in that well nobody notices that it's not the Rhapsode. It's like fair enough, they do yeah. quite similar. Yes. Uh, actors. Um but um although Michael Bid is noticeably thicker than mine. Well um, it is now because it is now to be fair, I have Because I've been in lockdown for months. Yeah. I um, funny yeah, so story, I deliberately didn't bring of, like euphoria from being adored on the stage and decides, well he wants to do it again. But he, so it's like getting all that, and they come together with an idea of uh, like instead of having like having lots of rhapsodes, basically reciting poetry to each other. But instead of doing that, instead of having them be rhapsodes, you have them act out a story, and you um, and then basically it's creating the idea of a play and how and the plot. And it's like so Homer and Helen, his sort of partner in crime through all this, who is literate, she, she's. I guess a secretarial slave, where it's always more of a, like a physical manual labour slave, even though it, he's got a quick mind, he's just, he's not literate, as most slaves would have been. Mm. Um, so she writes it, she, she sort of scribes it down as he sort of comes up with all these ideas, and they, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Um, and then Aeschylus is a character, Aeschylus plays one of the villains of the piece, uh, and it's, I won't give away too much, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it takes a lot of the tropes I think of ancient Greek um, theatre and ancient Greek um, 
sort of performance generally, but sort of like poetry and things. And pokes a lot of fun at it, and mm. it's it's done because well, obviously uh, Ewan is a well, Ewan is a lawyer by training, but is a classics student as well. Mm. So um, it, and you can tell that like, he comes from a combination of like a deep like sense of knowledge and love for the subject, and also a brilliant like mind that can find all the contrived nature. Uh, of of these things and poke a lot of fun at it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a big fun. Obviously, a shame that it's been postponed, but hopefully mm-hmm. we will um, be able to perform it mm-hmm. sometime after the end of all of this. So yes, I have a funny story about this that I don't think I ever me- I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but I had planned actually to talk to you, and I never ended up doing this because I realised that I was just doing it out of habit. But I'd I'd. Yeah. I planned to ask him about making a change to one of the scenes, specifically the scene in which you beat me up, so that instead of you knocking me out, you would attempt to knock me out, fail, it would be a case of you would hit me over the head with the thing you hit me over there with. I wouldn't react to it at all. I'd just turn around and be like, what are you doing? And you'd try again, you'd fail, and I'd be like, give it to me. I would then demonstrate it on you, you'd be knocked out, and then I would trip over your unconscious corpse and knock myself out. You would then come around and act as though you had knocked me out. That would have worked, but uh, I, th- I think for the sake of streamlining. Um... Was it an entirely convoluted idea purely to make fun at your expense? Yes. Do I stand by that as a creative decision? I mean, also, yes. I, I understand it. Yeah, that, that would work. Um, but yeah, it's. Um... So yeah, that's, that was a lot of fun, and, and that, that was a lot of work. Um, but apart from that, um... Sort of just like making lists of things to do after and well after and during lockdown. Mm. So and you know reading a lot, <laughs> which has been nice. Getting to read for fun, uh, which I've not done in about seven years. So <laughs> I know that feeling. Uh, but yeah, no. Apart from that, um, obviously, uh, the Shakespeare Society are doing sort of planning on doing Zoom read-throughs um, of plays. I'm hoping to be involved in. They're one for much ado, mm, As am I. Um, find out um, on Friday, I think. Whenever the 19th is. Is that Friday? Yeah. Yes. Um, so there's that. And then quite recently, but technically in the past, uh, I've been on TV. So that was fun. Um, I, I, I feature, well, not feature, yeah, I, I appear, I should say, uh, quite briefly in the BBC Alba production uh it's a documentary about young uh like 21st century gales and one of them finley uh was a, a tour guide at the hunterian and he was doing the medical history tours which was as you probably remember michael was my my tour. It's i am a, a historian of medicine mm-hmm. by by degree now <laughs> i guess yeah um with, with my masters um and yeah, so I, I gave an initial tour on it, and that was recorded, and I think a couple of bits and pieces appear in... It'll either be the first or the second episode. I'm not entirely sure. I've only been able to catch the third or the fourth, because the first and the second are no longer available on BBC iPlayer. Ah. So I might be in it, now I've said that, and I might not, but I was recorded film for that, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, you have also I'm appeared on television in University Challenge, of course. Yes, I was about, yeah, about to get to that. Um, so yeah, went to university, went to Manchester in uh, February, well, Salford, technically, 
and uh, Salton Keys and Media City, where I uh, recorded the first round of University Challenge. Um, University Challenge filming has been um, postponed as well because of the, uh, the lockdown. Um, so Shocking. those of you who don't know, uh, University Challenge is not filmed every week. Um, it is filmed in three long blocks um, at the beginning of the year. So it's filmed uh, the last weekend of last weekends of February, March, and April. Obviously, the only the first filming block was completed before the lockdown happened. So filming will resume in September and November. But the first episode we, this year, which is uh, Glasgow versus Exeter, will be broadcast, I think, on the 13th of July, which is Monday, because it's been around that date previously in the past couple of years so most likely to be then again uh, where you will get to see me um joy you'll get to see me get a couple of science questions based entirely on the latin which is um which is a lot of fun knowledge it's what i do it's my thing fair um, enough but yeah so yeah the universe challenge and uh for on bbc one and um some stuff on bbc albert really is but obviously both of those are as myself they're not they're not Indeed. <laughs> well, going back onto acting, let's talk a bit about what the future might hold, because I know that you have ideas about the future that uh, you and I may work on together. Yes, a couple of ideas, actually. Um, well, a couple of One of them is very, like, out there, so I'll get that in a minute. But the first couple are, well, they'll either be plays or screenplays, depending. Um, but obviously, with the option of adapting between the two. Uh, the first one, uh, which is the one I've spoken to you quite a bit about, Michael, is called Lazarus, um, and it's a dark comedy, because it's me, so of course. Um, Indeed. It's a dark comedy set in the Crusades, and the way I sort of, um, the way I explain it to most people is, imagine MASH, but during the 12th century. And it's, um, it follows the, like, chief medical uh, brother of the Order of St. Lazarus, who are a lesser-known um, hospitaler order. And the reason I've not chosen the hospitalers is because Lazarus, is the, the work done by the, the Order of St. Lazarus is, by definition, much darker than the work done by the hospitalers. The hospitalers did your standard medical stuff, uh, surgical stuff, whereas the Order of St. Lazarus were a hospice rather than a hospital. Um, their hospital was one of the first hospices known uh, historically for the care rather than the treatment of sufferers of leprosy. So already quite a dark topic. And it's, um, it's the, basically the comedy derives from the fact that for some reason, um, Sir Eric, who is the, the, the knight, the brother knight, who is the senior uh, medical member of the, the order, is immune to, to leprosy. Obviously, he doesn't know this, but he just never seems to contract it, whereas everyone who works with him does, because eventually... Whilst leprosy is not as, um, not as um, infectious as people think, um, it's still quite an infectious disease. It's caused by uh, bacterial infection, um, and obviously through continued contact with a sufferer, you will eventually get it. It's the same as most most diseases of the type, but it's um, it takes a lot longer to get it uh, than people think. Um, and it's and it's and it's him trying to find a way of getting new medical practitioners into the there is everyone wants to be a hospitaler because everyone wants to do like that or oh, saving knights is so glamorous. Nobody wants to work with lepers because they're seen as cursed by God and all of this and 
whereas in the Middle East, their view of lepers was slightly different. So it's using that like Arab Christian belief, uh, the fact that they are Christ's elect on earth, so they're chosen to suffer as he did, and therefore get to go straight to heaven. They don't go to purgatory. Um, and it's the idea of, well, if you've taken the Holy Cross, you're forgiven of all sins you've confessed. Um, and then obviously if you're then working with lepers, if you get contract leprosy, boom, you're saved. It's the idea that you're working to say, like, to help um, these people and like making shady deals with like Venetian and Genoan merchants. <laughs> like, it's 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 not all there, like, but the general like plot points of him trying to convince the Grand Master of the Order to let him essentially scam um, people in Western Europe, <coughs> because. One thing I've decided is that um, Zarek's uh, faith is constantly he's constantly questioning it because of the suffering he sees and everything. So it's like he's not as invested as he probably was when he first joined the order, but he does he wants to help people, and it's so yeah he he's less bothered about scamming people than probably the younger brothers of the order would be. So yeah he's a <clears throat> so yeah there's that one. Which is um, like constantly rattling around, just trying to do research as well, looking into um, orders of nursing as well, so I can get um, some um, often overlooked uh, female roles in the place. Obviously, medieval um, history. It's the old, it's the idea of uh, housewives and harlots. It's like you you really only have one or the other, which isn't true. Mm. Um, at all, like, um, and it's trying to show a bit more historical authenticity. No historical accuracy, like the, the language is going to be completely historically inaccurate. One, they'll be speaking in English, not Middle English, Middle French and Latin. Mm, but, um, <laughs> but also the way they communicate will be very 20th, 21st century. But trying to get a sense of historical authenticity to it, which includes trying to create um, authentic, non-traditional uh, roles for uh, groups of people. So, yeah, so looking into like you know, um, holy orders of like nursing sisters and seeing if any would have been involved with the um, the hospital of St. Lazarus. Because mm -hmm. obviously they probably will have been involved with the hospital of St. John. But um, I'm saying if there are, but even so, you can have the hospital of St. John as a thing. So you can have the, you can have, so there are ways of getting around that. But a lot of research going into it because um, it's an area of particular interest, and I have some limited experience in it. But it's by, not by any means my um, my area of uh, expertise, mm -hmm. at least at present. So, but like, military medicine, yes. Military medicine in the twelfth uh, century, no. Yeah. So there's that one, and then a slightly more dramatic turn. Um, there's a play. Now I was inspired to do this combination of different things. So I know there is a musical about this, but I want to do, or, well, not about this particular, but related to this. The name of which, you will know, Michael, escapes me. Uh, but it's, the play is called Yellow Ribbon, and it's, uh, that the idea for it is based on Operation Yellow Ribbon, which is a, a little known uh, event, probably outside of the two countries involved, uh, where it was a joint civil military operation by the Canadian government. Um, to aid the United States following the September 11th attacks. Ah. I, th I think it's, they came from far away. I think it's the musical. They come from away? 
They come from away, yeah. That's they come from away is the musical. The musical is based on the experiences of pilots and passengers in that. Yes. Um, which is very much it's sort of uh, where I wanted to give the uh, I wanted to sort of do a play about the experiences of the um, the Canadian people, like the, their response and how they deal. And I thought I'd set it in like um, in the Canadian like um, federal air services, which has a formal name, which again escapes me, in their sort of crisis centre. Mm. And how they uh, they get the message, and then they they deal with it very quickly. They land hundreds of potentially thousands of planes and get tens of thousands of people to safety. Um, uh, following this, they essentially close their airspace except for aircraft already in American airspace um, to to allow them to, to to land safely. And it's um yeah, it's it's quite an incredible feat, and it's just it's just this idea of how do you respond to your nearest neighbor uh, suffering one of the worst terrorist attacks in in history? How do you obviously you have to go get past your own fear that in opening your airspace to help them you might become a target? Mm. But it's this idea of coming overcoming that fear to sort of um, sort of uh, figurative, of course, stretch out a hand of, of assistance, and I think. And these times, particularly um, resonant, resonating, of, of we all need to sort of stick together to help the victims of terrible injustice. I think. Um, so yeah, I had that for a couple of yeah, a couple of couple of months now actually. Ever since reading, I don't know how I fell into like a down a Wikipedia hole and read about um, Operation Yellow Ribbon. I was like, this is amazing. I've never heard of it before, and. Um, yeah, so I think that that would be quite a lot of, but well, not fun necessarily, but I think it'd be quite a, an interesting mm -hmm. uh, project to work on as a as a writer. But yeah, and then um, on a slightly lighter note, <laughs> mm -hmm. a bit more out there. Uh, obviously, we, we've spoken about a ridiculous jukebox musical um, for the um, Pet Shop Boys set during the Crusades. Ah, uh, yes. It weirdly fits. It weirdly fits. It, it's mental how, like, how many different Pet Shop Boys songs you can make fit around the Crusades. I'll be honest, when you first mentioned this to me, whilst you were a tad drunk, the only Pet Shop Boys song I knew was Go West. And I thought about that and thought, okay, no, actually, that could make sense, it's sort of. Yeah, all right. It's now that I've done some research, I'm thinking, all right, there may be. It's not the weirdest idea I've ever no. heard in theatre. No, but that, that, that's not what it was. But it's it's basically like two bunch. It's a slightly more realistic one. It's um, jukebox musical of the uh, of the bare naked ladies, uh, but it's just a standard romantic comedy kind of thing. Yeah, and it's uh, uh takes its name from one of uh, from the the first studio album. Of the uh, as does the lead character uh, Gordon, uh, and it's yeah follows the um, yeah his, his trials and tribulations and things, and it's yeah so <laughs> it's a bit more out there, and obviously the rights for that would be yes. As someone who has done research into um, the band I previously mentioned, my favorite band, Steam Powered Giraffe, I started writing a jukebox musical with their music based both off of their ideas themselves and the plotline of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. 
um, I called it Steam Powered Dreams. Um, uh, and I did actually chat to them when I once met them about it, and they they were interested in the prospect, but they they a lot of bands aren't keen on getting involved in such attempts because apparently legally it's a massive headache. So yeah, so that's more like so those two things, those two like, mm. um, which are comedic, like so like the Crusades one I would go and see. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, yeah, like the yeah, like um, it's a sin, uh, a a a jukebox musical set the Crusade. Yes, a Crusaders jukebox musical. Yes, and it would yes, and um, which I think would both yeah they would both um, would be a lot of fun to do, but obviously. I just said, like legally and logi- legally, logistically and financially, just nightmares. Yes, can you imagine trying to get investors for that? Yeah, like trying to try to pitch, especially, especially into like, because you imagine trying to pitch that idea. Like, so bear with me. It's a it's a Pet Shop Boys jukebox musical. Okay. But it's set in the Crusades. <laughs> like, uh- Trying to pitch that idea would be next to it. There are weirder ideas. Riffing off Come From Away, which is a great musical, but someone went into that pitch and said, right, it's a musical about Operation Yellow Ribbon. And yeah. Ever... yeah. Yeah, it's a musical. Yeah, it was, it was like, I think, so I think, like, I, because like, they're in a musical, they're making a dramatic play out of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you must think Andrew Lloyd Webber at one thought, Andrew Lloyd Webber at one point thought, I will make a musical based on the Profumo Affair. Yeah. See, it's impressive partly because... Well, the thing, musicals have for so long been the sort of comic, light-hearted medium. Some people are simply trying to see just how serious they can be made. And... Well, I mean, look at Fiddle on the Roof. That's a very serious... It deals with a very serious issue. It does... A series of very serious issues, in fact. Um, I think it does it well. It is my favourite musical, though, I am quite biased. Fair. Um, but yeah, and then, yeah, so, so, so that sort of stuff in, in, in theatre and stage in the future, but I've got like a few ideas for, for other stuff, like writing, just general writing. So um, I had an idea about, um, so it's a novel called uh, Remnants, and it's actually based entirely, so far, uh, the idea is based entirely off a painting. Um, it's a painting called Remnants of an Army. Um, it's by uh, Lady Butler, who was one of the leading figures in sort of like military history painting. Mm. So she, she painted uh, quite a few famous ones, including like the, the Charge of the Scots Greys. Ah. The Waterloo, she's another famous image. Of the, yes, the no, I'm familiar with that one. The, the Cavalry Charge of Waterloo, that, that's one of hers. Um, and it's a painting of um, a single individual. Uh, outside the walls of Jalalabad in um, in Afghanistan, and it's that individual is um, William Bryan, who was the assistant surgeon in the army of William Ethelston, uh, who were wiped out to a man uh, following the tre- retreat from Kabul in the Anglo-Afghan wars, and it'd be like a a dramatization, fictionalized, fictional version of his experiences. Uh, leading up to his survival from that um, disastrous event, uh, I think I think actually there were like a couple of other survivors, but he, he is commemorated in that painting. And it's a, yeah, it's just the, it's, it's amazing. I think there were like twelve people that survived in total. 
but the the army itself was like forty four thousand strong. It was a large large army. Oh. And then the other one is actually inspired by a conversation you and I had uh, last week. I think you're uh, ah. talking about how you plan on writing novels about or stories generally, mm-hmm. sort of novels, short stories, novellas, etc. About um, uh, Leopold Braithwood. Yes. Characters and I thought, well, actually, I I created a couple of like interesting characters through in by obviously in a different medium uh, to you in sort of like role playing games. But one that's particularly stuck with me is is our good friend the the, the major um, Henry Mallon. Yes. Um, who was a character? Um, if you'll allow me the time to <laughs> explain briefly. But, yes. Um, was a character that I created for a. A game of Call of Cthulhu, yes, in which appeared the son um, of my character, Leopold, Professor Wraithwood, whom I may or may not have included partly to annoy the GM. That's fair. But let's be honest, we were all doing that by the end. By the end, yeah, very much so. Yes. Um, well, yeah, so Henry Mallinger is a, is, a, is a major in the um, Royal Army Medical Corps. Yes. And... Uh, yeah, his name actually, because uh, it's full of uh, Henry uh, Gordon Mallon, which is a combination of uh, two real people. Mm. Um, like, because Gordon Mallon was um, a real surgeon in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and I cannot remember the surname of uh, the Henry, but they were they were also both Victoria Cross recipients. Ah. <laughs> so, oh yeah, so I'd just be more of a like a kind of mystery kind of feel novel for it, so like in the well, so he's not a professional No. He uses like his medical training to uh, Yes. To work things out and it's um, yeah, so obviously that's just an idea of all uh, I do sometimes but, think there might be something to be said for a <laughs> murder mystery similar story featuring our various characters from that comp- campaign. Well that that was part and part of my idea, but I thought I'd, I'd just use Henry for now. Yes. I will say, aside from you and me, I don't think anyone will particularly object to us nicking their characters. No, probably not. Though they were fascinating characters. They were. They were very, yes. very good ones. I was partic- I got particularly attached to my character as well. I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, uh, mm. as Henry Mallon. I very much like the idea that my character, Professor Leopold Raithwood, has a son who turns out not unlike. The character you all encountered. Yes, yeah. Well, it was quite interesting because it's like the, it was just the way that the two of us interacted with like the um, the occult was very interesting because it's like your character was so like opposed to anything like slightly new age, like psychic stuff and all that. It's like, but you're like a professor of the occult. Yes. <laughs> and then I'm a man of science. I'm like, well, possibly. <laughs> I was sort of basing my reactions a bit off of. Harry Houdini, who was, yeah, yeah. as we know, Harry Houdini was hugely against sort of the spiritualist world, everything, because he, as a magician, knew how all the tricks were done. And sort of, yeah. I always had the theory of well, yeah, my yeah. character was raised by his father, who was also an expert on the occult, to know what is and is not possible. And Wraithwood would have been one of the first to say, right, first thing you need to understand, psychics, as far as we understand, aren't a thing. Anyone who claims differently is lying. Well, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm sceptical about my... I'm not going to be a dick 
because it's very much like the like the attempt of me to try and humanize the medical profession, which in the 1890s was, and then 1910s when we were saying, uh, yes, not exactly renowned for, but, quite. But also, like he served in North Africa for a while, both North and South Africa. So it's like it's, uh, he, he he's seen things that he can't quite explain. Yes, well, yeah. so was my character. That was the whole thing of it. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like so you know where he's like. Well, I've seen this mental shit. Yes. Have any explanations? Or maybe psychics are real. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. We uh, seem to have come to near the end of our shared journey. Yeah. Uh, a long one, but a, a fun one. Yeah, I think this may be the longest one I've recorded so far. Uh, my, my apologies. Uh, yeah, not a problem. You. There has not been a moment where you've not said something that's fascinating. I I normally end with a reflection on a memory shared with my guest, but we've been reflecting on our shared memories the whole the whole thing. So yeah. I do not think that is necessary. However, I do also end, as you know, because James is one of the people who actually listens to my podcasts. Yes, I do. I say that like that means a thing, because if you don't listen to my podcast, you're not listening to this. <laughs> but um, I like to have my guests end with a theatrical thought, a monologue, a memory, a song, if they fancy it. I have done karaoke with James. It is an experience. Uh, yes, yeah. My drunk rendition of uh, If I Were a Rich Man is, is a sight to behold. Um, you know, you remind me, I saw, you'll appreciate this because we were just talking about Call of Cthulhu. Um, it's a, a band I'm fond of, the Coggan Keys, who are like a music hall steampunk duo. They did a recent, um, lo- a, a recent concert. Uh, there was a load of takes on musical songs. And one of them was If I Were a Rich Man, but they did it If I Were a Deep One from the Cthulhu Mythos. But anyway, so your theatrical thought to end us, sir. Well, it's less of a theatrical thought mm-hmm. and more of a uh, proverb. Um, as, as, as you know, I'm quite a big fan of uh, Persian proverbs in particular. Mm-hmm. So like things like this too shall pass and the like, which very appropriate. In, in, in this time yes. but I think rather more appropriate and obviously I know you try to keep things uh, uh, apolitical as possible here Michael but I think that um, it's uh, actually a line from the, the Talmud which uh, is a set of well it's essentially a, it's, a, it's the oral explanations of the Torah in written form the Talmud, and um, it's a it's a line that has been often quoted and has quote, been quoted in different things, and it's um, it goes essentially like um, whoever destroys a soul uh, is considered as, as if he destroyed an entire world, and whoever saves a life is considered as if he saved an entire world. Um, it's often quoted as um, he who saves the life of one man saves the entire world, which is the quote that's used in Schindler's List. Mm. And it's the idea that, uh, and there are different variations of it. My favorite variation is um, he, he who destroys a life uh, destroys a world entire. He who saves a life saves the world entire. So it's the idea of um, violence, you destroy that person's world and the people on it, whereas uh, acts of kindness um, and standing up for justice and what you believe in uh, and what is right saves everyone. And it's the idea that um, 
even saving one person is a wonderful, wonderful act. And we should all try to strive um, to, to help one another as much as we can. It's how I've always uh, sort of interpreted it. And it's um, the idea that we, should, we shouldn't stand idly by and let worlds be destroyed. We should do our best to, to save them and um, fight injustice and intolerance um, wherever we find it. To the best of our abilities, not uh, and because your world matters too, um, so you shouldn't ever try to overextend yourself. Um, but if it is safe to do so and possible to do so, then try to well t take um, take a leaf out of Canada's book and extend uh, a hand to um, to your neighbour who needs your help. That is a beautiful thought to end on. And to address what we said, whilst I do try and avoid um, overly political arguments on this podcast, I would also like to state fundamentally that the lives and rights of other people is not a political issue. It is simply something yeah. that everyone deserves. Absolutely. Exactly. So thank you so much for that beautiful thought. And thank you so much for coming on today. It is, as always, a pleasure to chat to you, James. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, thank you. Um, so we come to our end. And... It's been lovely having you here. So it's a goodbye from James. Nice to be here. It's a goodbye from me. And as ever, I would like to remind everyone that whilst we are seemingly approaching the end of lockdown, please try and stay safe and keep one another in our thoughts because the only way we're going to get through this is together. So everyone, take care, stay safe, and we'll all hopefully see you next time. Goodbye. Our revels now are ended. We have reached the final page, and only the ghost light is left to occupy the stage. And though it may seem simple, metal filament and glass, it knows the truth we all must know. It knows this too shall pass. For now the theatre's empty, while the ghost light does still burn, but the ghost light has a meaning. It means we shall return.